Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Kylie Scroop and I'm the curator of manuscripts here at the library. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted you've joined us today to hear authors Leslie Harding and Kendra Morgan discuss their most recent book, Modern Love, The Lives of John and Sunday Reed. Leslie and Kendra are curators at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, where they have long been immersed in the legacy of Heidi's founders, John and Sunday Reed. Together, they've previously written about the Reeds in Sunday's Kitchen and Sunday's Garden, which discussed in turn food and the landscape at Heidi. In their new book, Modern Love, they delve more intimately into the Reeds and their marriage, presenting a biography that intertwines with the lives of some of Australia's most celebrated artists. Many of you, I'm sure, already know some of the story of Heidi and the Reeds. They purchased the 15-acre property just outside Melbourne in 1934, not long after their marriage. They opened their home and hearts to an artistic circle, fostering an intellectual and creative environment often regarded as the birthplace of Australian modernism. Supporting this, of course, is the dynamic and unorthodox relationship of the Reeds themselves. This story, from their formative years through to their deaths in 1981, just 10 days apart, is the focus of modern love. Meticulously researched, the book draws on the vast amount of literature that already exists surrounding the Reeds and on a remarkable range of primary sources that reveal the full story of John and Sunday's lives. Please join me in welcoming Leslie and Kendra. Thanks, Kylie, and thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. It's lovely to see you all here. It's a very great welcome to Canberra. I'm Kendra. That's this is Leslie. Um, we thought what we'd do tonight is we do have a, a, a PowerPoint with a slideshow with images um, that will roll through as we're talking, but we're not going to talk to the PowerPoint. We'll kind of just let you enjoy it, and the photographs are from the book itself. So hopefully you'll get to read it and you'll see a bit um, more about the people in the PowerPoint in um, depth when you look at the book. Anyway, as Kylie mentioned, we've both been curators at Heidi for um, a very long time, me for 12 years, Leslie for 10 years, and um, as well as our exhibition work, um, about five or six years ago, we began to write books about the social history of Heidi, and the first one, Sunday's Kitchen, was really based on the fact that in the Heidi collection, we have this amazing recipe book of Sunday Reads, and Sunday had a real garden-to-table ethos, which has kind of currency today, and she fed all the artists who came and gathered at Heidi and nurtured them. And um, we thought it would be a great thing to build a story around that, which we did. And then the second book, Sunday's Garden, was more about the development of the property at Heidi. We weren't, we're not gardeners, so it was quite a challenge writing that book, but we thoroughly enjoyed it. It, it really, Heidi was transformed from um, a very neglected former dairy farm when the reeds bought it in 1934 to a very verdant parkland and sculpture park, which it is today. And... Um, Anyway, as we worked on these two books, we met a lot of people who either knew the Reeds or knew their adopted son, Sweeney. And what we discovered was that um, other than food and gardening, we all kn always knew there was a lot more to tell about the story of Heidi, but really people began to tell us anecdotes and aspects of their interactions with the Reeds that weren't on the public record. 
And not only that, but as we went through um, the various primary sources, including the voluminous read papers, which consist of about um, 100 boxes of documents, and each box has a, a set of about 20 files, and each file has a set of about 20 to 30 documents in it, whether it's letters or what have you. As we went through these, we also began to find other pieces of this jigsaw of John and Sunday's life that um, really we realized needed to be put fully into place. And so we started this file that we very wryly dubbed Sunday's Secrets. And we thought, oh, this is going to be the final word and the final book in the trilogy. And um, as we gathered more and more information, what we truly realized is that the truth is often stranger than fiction. And the story of the Reed's lives was a really extraordinary one. It was an extraordinary partnership and um, the incredible central and catalytic role they played in, the, in terms of sending many famous Australian artists, just to say Sidney Nolan, Arthur Boyd, Joy Hester, Albert Tucker, John Percival, to toss a few names off the list. They really sent these artists on a trajectory into their future careers and into becoming household names in Australian art. Um, so anyway, we um, were commissioned by Melbourne University Press to, to write th this book, having pitched the idea of writing a third book in the trilogy, which we kind of wanted to focus on the art that ended up being a biography, so a, a very new genre for us. And what we thought we would do tonight is really talk to you about um, the first part of the Reed's lives, because we'd love you to read the book and find out about the later part. So we'd like to give you a bit of a kind of um, an entree into some of their um, um, early years, um, how their starts to life influenced their later interactions with very important artists in the history of Australian art, and really what set them on the pathway to becoming the founders of, of Heidi, the museum as we know it today. So um, I'll, I'll talk first a little bit about um, John's um, back family background and then about Sundays, and then I'm going to hand you to Leslie, and we do a little bit of a tag team thing. So to start with, um, John... Reed, some of you will know probably a little bit about him. He came from a very affluent um, grazier family from northern Tasmania. He was born in, um, just outside Launceston on a family property called Logan at Evandale. And he, his grandfather, Henry Reed, was one of the founding pioneers of Tasmania. He was a very um, a, a dynamic figure. He was actually the son of a Yorkshire postmaster, and he came out to Van Diemen's Land when he was about 21 in 1827. He landed in Hobart. He was ready to kind of seek his fortune in the colonies, and he walked all the way to Launceston because he didn't have enough money for a horse, and he got a job in a mercantile business and eventually kind of worked his way up to having his own business, having got a free land grant from the lieutenant governor of the time. He um, started a series of whaling and sealing and trading ventures and um, began steadily to make quite a lot of money and ended up financing John Batman into the settlement of Port Phillip in, in 1834, 1835. And at that time, interestingly, um, Henry Reed, John's grandfather, claimed he was a very devout Wesleyan, that he had given the very first sermon to be delivered in Melbourne um, to John Batman and his brother and to three indigenous men. And then he took a, um, a, went on an, a journey up the Yarra River with some of the indigenous men, probably with their conversion in mind. But interestingly, he passed by the very site that Heidi is um, developed on today. So there's a kind of nice synergy there. 
Um, and then Henry Reid um, spent a lot of time coming to and back with, uh, between England and Tasmania through the rest of the um, middle of the um, 1800s. And he married twice and had, he was very prodigious, had a lot of children, 11 or so with the first wife and five with the second. And his very youngest son from the second marriage, Henry Jr., was John's father. And um, Henry Jr. ended up being the inheritor of Henry Sr.'s estate um, when Henry Sr. died in Tasmania in 1880. And there was an older son from the second marriage called Walter who probably should have inherited the estate, but we discovered he was the black sheep of the family. He fell in love with the girl of convict stock who was well beneath his station, and he died under very mysterious circumstances in a brothel in London. And John Reed's uh, nephew, Kenneth von Vibra, told us that he'd always hoped that Walter died coming out of the brothel and not going into it. Um, anyway, um, Henry inherited this estate when he was just a boy. He was, uh, he was only about 10, I think, and he, um, his mother um, really wasn't that keen for him to have a life on the land, so she packed him up with some of his siblings and took him back to England where he studied medicine at Cambridge, and he was going to be a missionary doctor when in the late, um, early 1890s, um, he discovered that the, fam the matters of the family estate were in complete disarray. The trustees had been handling it badly, and he was called back to Tasmania to run it. And so whether he liked it or not, he had to follow this life on the land, and um, he married his uh, very beautiful Scottish um, uh, girlfriend, I guess you could call her, Lila Dennison, John's mother, in 1895 and brought her back to Tasmania um, where they settled predominantly at, the, at, well, they kind of moved between three properties, Logan, a beautiful property called Wesley Dale and another property called Mount Pleasant, which is now owned by a Belgian, Belgian champagne maker and is still in existence with a beautiful Victorian mansion on it. There's probably a picture of it has gone past. And here John spent the early years of his childhood with his own four siblings. He had this wavy mane of hair and his, his brothers and sisters called him Paderewski after the Polish, a Polish prime minister of the era who was an amazing concert pianist and had the same kind of dark wavy locks. But when John was only eight, his parents, as did many um, parents of the upper social echelons at the time, sent him off to... Um, boarding school in England with his four older siblings. They were meant to sail on a, um, a blue line uh, boat called the Waratah and luckily they didn't go on that boat. They changed their tickets at the last minute because at first John was considered too young to go and then it was decided he should go with the older children and the Waratah was sunk on the journey and no trace of any of the passengers were ever found. But sadly, he didn't see his parents more than once or twice in five years. Neither, and, you know, the children were just there. They were looked after by various aunts and uncles. And John and his brother, older brother Dick suffered quite terribly. They, they went first to Pinewood School near Farnborough, and then they went to Cheltenham, where Patrick White also attended a few years later. And they suffered bullying because they had Australian accents and wore different clothes and so forth. And John developed um, to be quite a lot of sporting prowess because he found that was the way to kind of get through and um, earn the respect of the other boys. And they came back to Australia with the outbreak of World War I. And, um, of course, the little quartet that had sort, you know, gone off five years before were quite independent. They hadn't had any parental authority in their lives when they left, and they were all quite rebellious at that stage when they came back as adolescents. So the parents' answer was Henry and Lila packed them off again to boarding school, and they went to, the girls went to the Hermitage, um, and the boys went to Geelong Grammar. 
And John kind of suffered all this difficulty all over again because now he had an English accent. Yes, and now he wore, and he, of course, he wore English attire, so it was kind of reverse bullying when he got to Geelong Grammar. Anyhow, he made a few um, interesting friends, one of them being Warwick Fairfax of the um, newspaper family and another being um, Alan McNeil, who was a, from Briscoe's Hardware Merchants. And when he left Geelong, he um, a nice anecdote actually about when he returned to Tasmania just briefly before he w- went to Cambridge um, to his, his um, father's alma mater to study law. And that was because his parents had a phrenologist examine the shape of his head. And he was, it, they were told that his head shape was clearly suited to the law. Um, he, uh, there was a great, there's a great anecdote from that time around 1920 when the Prince of Wales was about to, was visiting um, Australia to give thanks for services in the Great War. And the Prince of Wales came to Tasmania and was meant to be put up by John Reed's family in, in Mount Pleasant. And John Reed's father, Henry, discovered that um, a number of Labour politicians, because there was a Labour government at the time, would be accompanying the royal party. And as he was very right-wing, he couldn't countenance the idea of having these Labour politicians in his house, and he cancelled the prince's visit, much to the servant's horror and Lila's horror. And she was very delighted when she met the prince at a function in um, Launceston a little bit later on that year and he said I'm really sorry you couldn't have me the hotel wasn't much here <laughs> and Lila um, got, had a little bit of compensation anyway George went off, I mean it's, uh, John went off to study law at Cambridge and here really he came into his own he, he, he attended Cambridge in the years when most of the male members of the Bloomsbury group were there promoting this kind of air of intellectual aristocracy and free love he began to attend lectures by labor politicians and possibly high teas by the you know the um, socialist club and so forth and he also interestingly befriended Harold Abrahams who was in the um, the Olympic sprint champion who was commemorated in the movie Chariots of Fire So he had a fantastic time at Cambridge and it was really with great difficulty that after a lot of travelling in Europe and through South America on his way home that he returned to Melbourne with a bit of a heavy heart because he knew that his father would want him to be a lawyer. And really he desired at that point in his life when he was um, 24 to really take up a life on the land and work on the Reed family properties in northern Tasmania. But it was not to be and his father found him a position at the law firm Blake and Riggle in Melbourne, one of Australia's biggest law firms at the time. And it was at that point that he began to meet a very interesting group of people who Leslie will talk more about in a minute, who really introduced him to modern art and began to open his horizons even further. And um, to, to return now to Sunday and tell you a little bit about, about her early life before I, I hand you over to Leslie. So Sunday was from Melbourne's Value family. Um, and her family background was fascinating as well. Her um, paternal grandfather, James George Baillieu, came out to Australia about 20 years after Henry Senior, Henry Reed Senior. And he, her, her distant relatives were actually um, lace makers and mercers from Liège in present-day Belgium. That they came over to the the um, to the United Kingdom, and in the 1790s, and her direct ancestors were in fact professional dancers and had a, um, a kind of variety of dance schools in Bristol. But the, the James George, who was her paternal grandfather, 
um, his father was a dancing master, but he had uh, 13 children and lived in Wales. And I think that to really alleviate the financial pressures on the family, James George went to sea. And he arrived in Australia in 1853, and he actually jumped ship um, in, um, Queen, in Port, Portsea, where the ship went into quarantine on the Mornington Peninsula, because the captain was quite rough and used to knock the sailors about. And he tried twice to desert, and it was successful on the second attempt. And he actually had to kind of float and swim on the ebb tide several kilometers um, over to the other side of the bay to Queenscliff and managed to escape detection, supposedly hiding out in a cave. And he very soon um, found a job working as an oarsman for the medical officer who went out, rowed out to meet the ships who were coming into quarantine. And on one of the incoming ships, he met Sunday's grandmother, Emma, who was apparently a great beauty and arrived on a ship full of women called the Australia. And apparently all the men at Queenscliff were wildly excited by the arrival of all these girls. And they were very young. Emma was only about 15 or 16 when they married, but they gave their ages as 21 and 22 to circumvent the need for parental consent. And they lived on the beach at Point Lonsdale, and James George became the assistant lighthouse keeper there. And then in the 1880s, he made a very astute business decision and borrowed some money off Edward Latham, who was a a brewery founder, to um, build what is now known as the Ozone Hotel, which was very successful and had an elite clientele, and that really set the family's business fortunes in motion. And um, they had many children, two, James and Emma, 13 in, in total. Arthur Sunday's father was about number seven. But one of the older sons, W.L., Um, William Lawrence Ballew was the kind of business genius of the family and began to get into stockbroking and real estate and so forth. And quite a few of the brothers, including Sunday's father, worked with him and for him. And that's when the Ballew fortunes began to really rise. So by the time Sunday was born in 1905, her father was um, very wealthy and had married uh, Ethel Ham from Ballarat, um, Sunday's mother, and Sunday led a very privileged and quite cosseted um, family background. She didn't actually, she was homeschooled, she learnt French from a governess, and she earned an appreciation of art from her mother, who was an amateur painter, but she didn't actually go to school till she was about um, 16 or so, and she kind of, she went to St. Catherine's, which was a new school in Turak at that point, and kind of went through a finishing school, if you like. And then um, Sunday had a bit of a capricious nature, and by the time she was a teenager, it was beginning to display itself quite significantly. She had a bit of a daredevil friend called Valerie Mule, who um, later became Valerie Fairfax, and the two girls had a few escapades together, and um, particularly down at Sorrento, where the Sunday's family had a holiday house. And then we know what we, had, what we um, discovered during the research for the book using, in particular, Trove, which is the National Library's amazing online resource of digital newspapers, was that Sunday met in 1923 a young Irish-American lad called uh, Leonard Quinn who was going to significantly change her life. And we discovered this through the social pages on Trove and managed to kind of track down how they came together. So now I'm going to get... Leslie to take up the story and tell you all about Sunday's first husband, who was the dastardly Leonard Quinn. <laughs> Kendra's been using this word dastardly. As he, really is the, he really is the villain of the piece, or certainly in the early part of the story. Um, and I have to, at, at this point, say it was not only Trove where we t- discovered much about um, Leonard Quinn, but my dear father, who um, has been doing a little bit of genealogy and is 
uh, access to lots of passenger lists and things and loves a little bit of detailed research, managed to track down the time that Leonard Quinn came out to Australia and also um, to check out his original um, birthplace and date, which has um, hitherto been inaccurately um, portrayed in previous books. So it turns out that he was actually a couple of years older than Sunday, but was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he emigrated with his family to England in, um, or when he was about at, uh, seven years of age. And um, in fact, his father was, a, of all things, a shoe dressings manufacturer, so made polishes and waxes and that kind of thing in Northampton. And, um, you know, he was a sort of average middle-class lad, but he clearly came over to Australia um, with his father on business um, when he was about 18. And they arrived first in Sydney, and it seems that probably at that point his father went back to England and he decided to stay on. Um, but the thing about Leonard Quinn was that he really wasn't very interested in working, so he quickly made his way down to Melbourne and ingratiated himself on the Turak set. Um, he was an excellent dancer, met, won many... Uh, dancing competitions, so of course, and he was, dash, he was really dashing, he was very handsome, um, and so the local girls really quite were taken by him, so he had lots of um, charm and charisma, and we do know through, um, through Trove, through those um, digitised newspapers, that he came to Sunday's Coming Out Dance, um, which was you know, a very important and significant uh, moment, because very shortly thereafter, the family were onto the relationship, and they whisked Sunday away, um, over to London for a year, um, uh, where she was to be presented at court. And, of course, they were hoping, uh, beyond hope, that she would meet some other eligible man over there that he, she might marry because she was clearly smitten with this fellow. Um, they, they must have had some sort of correspondence. There are no extant letters. Um, however, um, we do know a little bit about um, Leonard Quinn's misdemeanours during that time because he pops up in the newspaper again in New Zealand where he wasn't doing anything gainful. Uh, he had said that he wanted to be a journalist, but in fact just managed to get himself into trouble with the law um, by speeding, of all things, in New Zealand, which would have been quite a hard thing, no mean feat, I suspect, in that day. I'm a Kiwi, so I know. 1920, <laughs> no cars. No. <laughs> um, but there's not really not much trace of, of what happened to Leonard Quinn because, of course, if you're not, don't, not appearing in the paper and in the social columns, um, you know, it's very hard to track you down. Um, but we do know that um, by the time Sunday had come back, and in fact, within a very short space of time, they had resumed their long-distance relationship and, um, um, unfortunately, Sunday's brother had died uh, really unexpectedly. He was only 25. He, he died of a... Um, of pneumonia, or, or so suspected, and um, Sunday decided at that point that she would run away to Sydney briefly with her friend Valerie Moore that um, Kendra has already mentioned, and it's likely that the two of them rendezvoused in Sydney. Um, by this stage, we think that Leonard Quinn's brother Paul was living in Sydney, and so that may have been a convenient meeting-up place. And certainly within three months of that time, uh, Sunday had announced, um, Sunday and Quinn had announced their engagement. Um, the family were not, none too pleased, of course, and, of course, and subsequently, instead of having a wonderful society wedding, as might be expected um, from a Baulieu daughter, um, they got married at a seaside Catholic church down at Sorrento. Uh, only the family were in attendance, and Valerie was um, there as well, but there, were no, there was no kind of formal bridal party at all, and the, uh, the bride's father and the groom's mother both signed the wedding certificate, the marriage certificate, um, and then they quickly uh, ran away to, on a motoring trip and stayed in Sydney for a year um, before uh, heading over to the UK. I, 
I suppose, to be reunited with Leonard's family and friends, um, but also because Leonard, it seems, had run up a whole series of gambling debts in Sydney during that time, and um, he was running away from them. Um, so the Bowyers, not after a certain period of time and not really hearing very much from Sunday, decided to take their own, yet another extended holiday in the UK and really just check up on her. And of course, by this stage, Sunday's older brother, Darren, was studying at Cambridge, so there was a double excuse. Um, and similarly, um, Ethel's um, uh, widowed sister was over there as well. So it was a great opportunity for Arthur to resume some of his hospital work. He was by this stage um, on the board of the Melbourne Hospital and do some investigation and research for them, but also really to check up on Sunday and make sure she was okay. Um, at a certain point in this trip, um, Sunday and Leonard, after meeting up with the values, uh, found themselves in Paris and um, there are a couple of interesting episodes which I'll leave it in the book and not recount now, but um, sort of leading up to this. But she was struck down, unfortunately, with an acute case of gonorrhea, which had been transferred, of course, by her, um, her promiscuous husband. And she found herself in a Paris hospital and having an um, a emergency hysterectomy. And sadly, at this time, we found out from Mirka Mora um, in a recent interview, um, she was pregnant at the time. So Sunday had a really disastrous first marriage. It only went for a short period of time, really, relatively. Um, and was, the family came over and rescued her from London, and she went back there for a few months for a couple of value family weddings in the intervening period. She found her, you know, they all made their way back to Melbourne, and I guess they wanted to put this episode behind her. Arthur had already um, set... Uh, divorce proceedings in place. Um, it was during this real this uh, initial period that um, that Sunday was back that she met John Reed at a tennis party, and it's likely that John's sister Cynthia was actually the connection. His younger sister Cynthia, um, by this stage, was working in Melbourne with a very avant-garde furniture designer who you Canberrans will all know, Fred Ward. Um, he had an interior design shop in Collins Street and um, it's interesting that, in fact, the Reeds were probably more, much more wealthy than the Bellews. They kind of owned a you know, great swathe of um, northern Tasmania um, by this stage. Um, however, uh, Henry Reed had decided that all of the children, including the girls, would go and find their own work and make their own way in, in the world. So one of the sisters went over to Cambridge to study medicine um, and Cynthia had a number of careers, but one of which was um, working as an interior designer. But she really was the um, introduction for John, just a smidgen before this too, to a, a really fascinating group um, of um, intellectuals, artistic types, so artists, um, journalists, writers and so forth. And it was this milieu that really became foundational for John and Sunday and sort of set them on the path to their um, ab abiding interest in modern art. Now, Cynthia is a really interesting character in our story and in fact it would be wonderful if someone decided to write a biography of her one day because she had a fascinating life. Mm. She left Melbourne not long thereafter to pursue acting and um, she went off to Sydney and then went off to America to change career again and become a, a nurse. But she was really the catalyst not only for their introduction but their, their own introduction but their introduction to this really... Um, quite um, avant-garde group of uh, Melbourne artists and the like. And the most important of those introductions, of course, was to a fellow called Sam Attio. And he was a, a bit of an enfant terrible. Uh, he had managed to get himself expelled from the National Gallery School 
um, in Melbourne uh, for painting a rather controversial picture for the Travelling Scholarship uh, Prize, which was which depicted the um, the director of the school, Bernard Hall, in a nightshirt as Lot, flanked by his daughters, which were naked students. So of course this this naughty picture couldn't be hung in the Travelling Scholarship exhibition, and Cynthia decided to hang it in the Collins Street, the Fred Ward Collins Street um, window where it, it managed to attract quite a lot of attention and publicity. So Sam came to John and Sunday with a bit of a reputation but they were really beguiled by this fellow. He was a real polymath, he, um, he was an architect, he was an interior designer, he was an industrial designer in that he made and designed furniture um, but he also had this fantastic eye for, um, for new painting and in fact probably painted what is regarded as the first truly abstract picture that Melbourne had seen, which is in a collection up here in the National Gallery called Organised Line to Yellow. Although it's not currently up in the collection here because we've got it on display at Heidi uh, for an exhibition that's accompanying our book. Um, and the relationship with Sam very quickly developed into something um, much more intimate. And in fact, it became John the Sunday's first experiment with an alternative type of relationship, which is very early in their marriage, mind you, they only got married in 1932, um, and that's the Menage a Trois. So Sam was a um, working class lad from Coburg, which if any of you know Melbourne at all, it's right, his address was right between the, the Coburg Cemetery and the Pentridge Prison, so it was an insalubrious neighbourhood to say the least, but he found himself um, spending more time uh, and at John Sunday's Mazinette in South Yarra than he did at home by this stage, and he had a studio in the city. Um, but it was, a, it was their first, I guess, their first encounter of, in terms of being very close to the making of art, and this was something that would really set up the way that they would frame and establish their relationships with artists much later on. Sunday, for a brief period, um, studied at the George Bell School, um, and was encouraged by Sam and his girlfriend, Moya Daring, to do so, but she had decided that she was insufficiently talented, so gave it away fairly quickly. But I guess that gave her a grounding in art, which was really important. It's a kind of like a... It's a critical, um, sort of uh, unspoken part of the, the tacit contract that she and John ended up having with artists, that she could really talk their language, in a sense, and really spot talent. Um, but they're also both... The pair of them were really widely read as well, and they subscribed to lots of international journals, and the, the Heidi Library became quite notorious amongst that group of people, and someone like you know, Albert Tucker, whom they met later, would often find himself you know, reading his head off in the library and... Um, absconding from the otherwise necessary work to help out in the garden, which seemed to be another tacit contract that the Reeds had with people who visited there. So I might hand back to Kendra now to talk a little bit about the, the 30s sure. influx. There are really, I guess I, before I do, I should just say that we, there are a number of waves of artists that we talk about at Hyde, the most famous of which are the 1940s group. So Albert Tucker, Joy Hester, Sidney Nolan, John Percival, Arthur Boyd, that group of artists who we call, generally call the Angry Penguins. Um, but there was a, that earlier wave, which was um, Sam Attio, Moya Daring and their colleagues, and you know people like Fred Ward and the psychiatrist Red, Reg Ellery. And then later on, there were another couple of waves of artists, Merkamora, Charles Blackman, etc., in the 1950s. And then by the 60s, John um, had a different career, 
um, working as the director of the Museum of Modern Art and Design of Australia. And there was a new... You know, they were always, always, I guess that's the point, they were always interested in the new, the contemporary, the avant-garde, the progressive in terms of art. So these successive waves sort of moved not only through the Reed's lives but also through Heidi, which they purchased in 1934. Hmm. So what we'll, I'll, I'll pick up the story here and talk a little bit about the 1930s and we'll lead you into the 1940s and then we hmm. might ask some questions because I know that we've been asked to talk for about half an hour, 40 minutes and we're already getting to that point. Um, as you can tell, our heads are still full of this story and we've, um, it always seems to just kind of come out whenever we start talking, so we go into probably too much detail than we should. But um, picking up where Leslie left off, um, in 1934, Sam Atio was actually with the Reeds when they found and then they discovered and purchased Heidi. So they were, um, Heidi, as I'm sure many of you know, is in outer Melbourne. And when, back in 1934, it was quite rural, near, near the suburb of Heidelberg, on the outskirts of Heidelberg, and they were driving back from a meeting in Templestowe, and they saw a small crowd gathered for an auction outside um, the Heidi farmhouse, and they just stopped the car, and opportunistically, they had been looking for a property, John and Sunday, and we think that Arthur, Sunday's father, had in fact offered to buy them their first property as a wedding present, but they hadn't found the right place yet. And so John bid on this auction, and Sam Attia reported this in a letter much later, and Voila, he said, you know, Heidi was theirs for a thousand pounds, which was about three years of John's salary at the time, so quite a bargain. And soon afterwards, they acquired um, a second allotment of land next door. So, all in all, the property they acquired is 15 acres in total. And they lived in that old farmhouse for. Um, Goodness, the first 30 years that they uh, that they from the from 1934 until the mid 1960s, when they bought a, built a second modernist residence on the property, and both are still in existence today. Anyway, the other thing about Sam Matteo, which is interesting, is that um, you know he was really Sunday's lover. John wasn't involved with him in a sexual sense, but John became the lover of Sam's part, own girlfriend, Moya Dyring. And when Leslie and I set out to write this book, we actually had kind of hoped to desensationalize some of the stories surrounding um, Heidi and its entanglements. And what we've discovered was that it was actually even more bohemian and experimental than we'd anticipated. So we've gone and done the reverse and actually made it seem even more kind of, I don't know, saucy than, than, than we had anticipated. So that we didn't really realize that we knew that John and Moya had been lovers, but their, their relationship actually went on for a number of years, even because not long after this, in 1936 and 1937, Sam Matteo and Moya Dyer respectively and separately left Australia, although they did marry later on. And uh, the relationship with Moya, however, between Moya and John continued whenever Moya returned to Australia right into the 1940s. So she and John were very close because some people have often commented to us that they felt that John was kind of left out of all the goings-on, but... He, don't worry, he wasn't. <laughs> anyway, um, in the mid-1930s, uh, as well, well, actually the later 1930s after Sam and Moya left, um, I guess there was something of a creative hiatus in a way or a, a, in John and Sunday's lives, and it was really before the new wave of artists came into, into the orbit of Heidi or the ambit of Heidi. And an important... Um, 
kind of turning point for the Reeds to meet new artists was the formation of the Contemporary Art Society in 1938. And I'm sure you know some of the history of this, but it was really um, Robert Menzies, who was then Attorney General, had suggested this very conservative body be developed called the Australian Com Academy of Art. And a group of um, you know, art benefactors and artists and like-minded people, including the Reeds and a and an Italian bookseller who sold art books and prints in a progressive little shop in the city, and um, the broadcaster and critic Adrian Lawler, who was also a painter, and a number of other people, including George Bell from the Bell School, uh, Bell Shaw School, decided to come together and form another exhibiting body for artists that promoted progressive art in opposition to this very conservative Australian Academy. And the Contemporary Art Society um, first came into being in July 1938, and it was through under the auspices of the society that the Reeds did meet a lot of the other artists that we commonly associate with Heide, Heidi, including um, Albert Tucker, who they met in 1938, Joy Hester, his partner and later his wife, who they met in 1939, um, and later Arthur Boyd and John Percival in the early 1940s. Um, but not through the Contemporary Art Society. Probably the, the key figure that they met in 1938 was Sidney Nolan. And he came into their lives um, by a different route. He had been, he was this, a bit like Sam Matteo, who he was about to replace, if you like, in the kind of hierarchy of the Reed's affections. He was um, a working class lad. As he was the son of a tram driver who was brought up in St Kilda, left school at 14, worked in a factory, got some commercial art experience and was very determined. He wrote poetry as well as um, experimented with painting. He did a few sporadic night classes at the National Gallery School, but it wasn't really his thing. He wasn't an academic um, artist by any means, and he really wanted to go to Paris, to the centre of modern art, and develop his career. So he put together a small folio of, of drawings, calligraphic kind of abstracted line drawings, and took them to I'm not sure how he got the appointment, but took them to Keith Murdoch's office at the Herald newspaper. And Keith Murdoch was quite dismissive and sent him on to Basil Burdett, who was the art critic for the Herald. And what Nolan really wanted was a travelling scholarship to get to Paris, someone to give him £50 or so. And Basil Burdett in turn sent him on to George Bell at um, the Bell Shaw School. And then George Bell said you know what, I think the person who might be interested in this folio is a solicitor whose office is up the road. He collects modern art, and his name is John Reed. And John Reed later wrote of his first meeting with Sidney Nolan when Nolan walked into his office that he just knew there was something about this man. There was something inexplicable. He sensed he had a bit of a wildcat, untamed spirit, and he had a very definite statement to make, but he didn't know what that statement was. He just knew he would make it. So John didn't give him the money to go to Paris either, but he did invite him back to Heidi for dinner the following night. And in many ways, as they say, the rest is history. Um, John and um, took, you know, John invited him. He had dinner. Nolan had dinner with he and Sunday, and it was very soon after this that a, um, a rapport was struck up with Sunday, and clearly there was a sexual attraction between them, which was to play out. And um, because we're kind of nearing the end of our time, I'm going to telescope it a little bit, but you're very happy, welcome to, I'm uh, um, very happy to answer questions, we're both happy to um, answer any questions you might have, but um, John, really Nolan stayed at Heidi on and off from that point for the next um, nearly 10 years until 1947, 
And at the time he met the Reeds, he had a very um, beautiful girlfriend called Elizabeth Patterson, who was also an art student. And in fact, Nolan married her in early um, in 1940. But um, the marriage was only short-lived, although they had a child together, Imelda, in January 1941. By that time, the kind of, um, I guess, intrusion of the Reeds into Nolan's life, because they were convinced that he was Australia's next big talent and they wanted to promote him and they had um, were very intensely involved in all that he was doing. His marriage with Elizabeth um, dissolved after the baby was born and she went to live with her parents and Nolan was basically... Um, shut out and so he had really I guess by default made his choice and at that point he moved into Heidi with John and Sunday and lived there except for a period of army service um, as I said until 1947 um, when and the situation became untenable and and a rift developed between them all that was never um, never healed in fact and Nolan's ongoing relationship with the Reeds, which was a strange one because after 1947, they wrote to him um, quite regularly and tried to contact him, and he actually never responded to any of their correspondence or attempts to contact him. It was always through an intermediary, but he married very suddenly Cynthia Reed, John Reed's sister, who um, Leslie has been talking about, who was also by this point estranged with the Reeds. So it was a um, it, w- it was a, a lifelong difficult relationship that is threaded throughout the entirety of the book and kind of re- reaches its resolution in the final chapter. Um, but I think we should probably stop talking there, and we haven't even told you about the Reed's adopted son Sweeney, who was the son of artist Joy Hester and Albert Tucker, who came into their lives, as you know, Sunday didn't have children, and he came into their lives in 1947. But that's a whole other story. But I think I think that's a good place to end. Thank you very much, Kendra.